that in order to meet this moment, we have to recognize our California comeback. I think in my time, this is a very unusual and a very unique time. What I'm saying about the state today, it's an enterprising, modernizing, pluralizing, unionizing nation state. Hello, and welcome back to the California Nation podcast. I'm Gil Duran, the California opinion editor for the Sacramento Bee. Last week, we learned of new allegations of sexual harassment and misconduct in the state legislature, this time against a state senator from Southern California. A former staffer filed a lawsuit claiming that the state senator's office discriminated against her and retaliated after she rebuffed the senator's advances. The senator categorically denies those charges. But the story, which was first reported by Hannah Wiley of the Sacramento Bee, got me thinking about some of the conversations I've had recently about issues of sexual harassment and misconduct in the state capitol. A lot has changed since the Me Too movement in 2017, or so we're led to believe. But have things changed enough? My guests today are three women who started the We Said Enough organization, which brought Me Too to the state capitol in a powerful way. They are Samantha Corbin, Adama Iwu, and Alicia Lewis. Now, in the aftermath of Me Too and We Said Enough, the legislature pledged to make changes and took steps in that direction. Several legislators resigned in the face of public allegations of misconduct. New rules were put in place. But how much has really changed? Sam, let's start with you. It's an interesting question. Certainly, there's been some structures that have been stood up um, and some new rules, but some of the historical challenges in addressing these issues seem to persist. Um, You know, whether that is uh, in terms of folks' comfort in going to the system to levy complaints, um, the process itself, um, and if it is in fact independent and fair, uh, and there's some questions as to whether or not that is the case. Um, And then frankly, you know, in terms of transparency, we, we really have not seen the type of data um, that, that we have consistently asked for, that we would want to see, um, to even see that this is, is functioning in the way that we would have hoped. Um, but certainly anecdotally, we're hearing from current and former staffers who feel that it's, that it's not. Um, so it, it's quite possible that we, we sort of rearranged the deck chairs on the Titanic to a certain degree. Um, yeah, and you know, I think it's, it's actually kind of frustrating um, You know, so much time and effort went into conversations in the capital community. So many women and men, um, people of color, really poured out their hearts talking about some of the discrimination, the abuse, um, sexual assaults that have happened around the Capitol. There was a lot of even legislators saying, is this true? Did this really happen? publicly calling out other people on Twitter. I mean, just, there were so many emotions and things that went into this um, a few years ago. And so to be here now on the other side of the workforce conduct unit um, and still hearing the same kinds of things and hearing women saying, I went to the WCU, but I didn't get any results. And so I felt I had to file a lawsuit. It's like, we've done so much, there's been so much pain, but has there really been any change? And it's frustrating. Alicia, would you like to add to that? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's like a system's only as good as people have confidence in it. And after all this time, we're just seeing that kind of just, you know, downplay itself as folks are not able to get the results or any type of answers when they go ahead and use the system that they've been pushed towards. And it's really just been disheartening to see after all this time, 
this is where we've landed is a system that's just once again, just kind of like brushing folks under the rug, not giving them solutions or even a timeline of when to expect an outcome for something that they've come forward with. So frustration is my overall feeling, I think about all of this right now. One of the questions I was going to ask was whether the systems or processes that the legislature put in place have established any sense of real transparency or accountability. Several legislators did resign, some staffers resigned in the aftermath of Me Too, and we said enough, but it sounds like you're saying that what was put in place is not actually achieving uh, the goal that was intended. I mean, we didn't ask anybody to resign. Let's be clear about that. We didn't start this to get anybody to resign or get anyone to lose jobs. We didn't start this to name names. We started it to actually change the capital community and change how people were treated to get the sexual assault abuse discrimination out of the system. And so, you know, we were thrilled when we saw that they were starting the workforce conduct unit, that they were going to be doing individual investigations, independent investigations. I mean, all of the steps that they were purported to have been taking, we were encouraged by that. The fact though, that two years later, we get very sporadic reporting out of the workforce conduct unit a taxpayer funded body. I mean, the fact that we don't know when complaints go in, they're kind of a black hole. We don't know how they're adjudicated. I think we've just gotten a couple of results out. One was about a woman. I mean, some of the really egregious things that we hear about because people reach out to us and tell us about, we find out that those went nowhere. They were told they weren't valid cases. Or we found out later that there's a lawsuit because someone tried to use the system and got absolutely nowhere. And then they are later smeared in the press. So it's not encouraging. And we still are saying, where's the transparency? Where are the results? Where is the accountability for the people that work in this body? I think it's worth noting too, that it's not a consistent transparency process as, as well. So the way the which like which reports actually get out and the way they're released to the press and everything else is just not the way that these should be done. I mean, we watched someplace like a body like the auditor's office put out reports and releases and on findings of things. And those are done in a way that has an expected like path of how things will be um, released, but we don't see that in the you know from the Senate or the assembly. While the uh, workplace conduct unit has merged the two houses, which was something positive to finally see happen, the outcome of how the reports get pushed out is just inconsistency and, you know, who knows what you'll actually get and why you're getting it versus, you know, another report that might have more weight to it or, you know, should didn't end up getting any attention. So. Yeah. And I think to add to that, the fact that the sister network, that the whisper network is still very much intact is a sign that the system's not working, that people feel like they're not getting redressed and they have to come to us or or go to the court. And, and of course, once a lawsuit is filed, then workplace conduct washes their hands of having to follow through on investigating a claim. So it's 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 extremely frustrating. And, and we've even seen multiple women come forward to us with complaints about the same legislators, only to see the legislator term out before any resolution even occurred. Um, and, and one final point, even if we were to get data, I, it's unclear how many people might be coming to the system who the system doesn't treat as eligible. Case in point, it's always been very unclear 
if and how lobbyists with a complaint um, can get recourse through a system that is really only designed for legislative staff and legislators. Definitely, because it's not just the elected officials, right? There's been this bigger culture where these things have taken place. And how do you hold those people also accountable? I've definitely heard from people who um, say there are still people wandering the halls who they feel are guilty of things that should have been dealt with in a transparent way. There should have been accountability and there has not been. And so I can't imagine how it would feel to have to go to work every day and confront uh, seeing someone like that. But it seems like while there was a a period during which there were some consequences for some people, it seems like what you're saying is that we do not, we have not changed the culture or established a system in which people know the consequences for this kind of behavior and the accountability for them will be guaranteed. What would it take to make real change here and establish that kind of culture and put in system, put it, put in place a system of accountability and transparency. Do you think that's something the legislature is capable of doing itself, or do you think that it's going to have to be done uh, by others? Adama, let's start with you. Well, I mean, right now we know the way to get accountability is to file a lawsuit. I mean, that's kind of the first way. The other way is to have the press take an interest in it and start asking pointed questions. Um, right now, those are really the two main ways that we know get accountability. Um, we don't know that about the Workforce Conduct Unit, but I mean, like Alicia mentioned, you know, we do see, we know that the legislature and the administrative um, body can actually release reports with transparency and rigor that are actually going to be well-respected, that are going to be listened to. For whatever reason, the Workforce Conduct Unit does not. They do not seem to be under that same burden to produce you know, reports that have weight and rigor to them. There is no consistent reporting method. There is no consistent reporting timetable. Like Alicia said, everything we get is very haphazard. So yeah, if there were quarterly reports where we had to get a good picture of how many complaints were taken in, kind of like what was the seriousness of them? What was the eventual disposition of them? What are the demographics of the people who are um, filing complaints? And we don't want you know, name, rank, and serial number, but just so we get a good picture of, are you addressing complaints of people of color? Are you addressing complaints of LGBTQ? So that we have an idea of actually what's being solved here. Right now, we have no idea. Like Lisa said, it's really haphazard. So we know their legislature can release reports that mean something. Right now, they choose not to. Sam, you had mentioned before uh, we started talking here on the podcast a concern about equity, about whether the complaints and the, the, the suffering of women of color in the Capitol in particular was being heard by people in the legislature. Can you explain more about why that's a concern to you, Sam? Sure. When we were working on the letter that ultimately ended up in the LA Times and, and launched this a few years ago, we we reached out to a lot of women, I think 147 signed it, but we spoke to upwards of 500 women um, who all provided input on the letter. And I always look at, you know, who's signing up, who's showing up. And as we were writing the letter, I noticed that a lot of the black staff in particular that we had reached out to, a lot of the black lobbyists were not signing on. And I asked why. And, you know, the very real response that came back was, this is the least of our issues. It's, you know, when we go in with a complaint, 
It doesn't matter if it's sexual harassment. It doesn't matter if it's toxic workplace. At the heart of all of that, there, you know, I'm I'm still black. I don't know where my blackness starts and ends in relation to these issues, and I don't feel like they'll be resolved by whatever this is. Um, and that was a very real concern then. It's a very real concern to date. I can tell you anecdotally of victims who have come to us, who have come to me personally and expressed frustration that they did not feel their complaints were being taken seriously or at all by workplace conduct unit. Almost all of them have been people of color or LGBTQ or both. And frankly, the legislature has abysmal numbers in terms of staffing in those areas as well. And one has to wonder if there is some symbiosis between between this and that. Alicia, do you want to add something to that? I, I agree with Sam in terms of the feedback we've we've received, especially from women of color and being a Latina and having worked in the Capitol, just really having that firsthand experience. So it, it still resonates to hear from staff when this unit, you know, exists and they're like, it's still not safe for me because of these layered reasons. Um, and then in terms of like other reforms still needed, I, I being my you know, open government self, I'm still all about reforming Laura. So I still think at the end of the day that if we don't have some, you know, actual <laughs> pen to paper written law, ways in which the legislature has to turn over records on this, we will not have anything but haphazard releases on, on these reports. And so I think having um, some strengthening of Laura would be able to go a long way but also it will, um, I think, take away the, I don't know, say the power, but also I think just the, the randomness to what's, you know, actually seeing the light of day and what's not. And, you know, at that point, then we're able to lean more into the press on being able to hold people accountable as well. So, you know, trying to find other ways besides just putting the pressure of litigation on, you know, victims and survivors to have to turn to because that's not the path for everybody. And so if we can just have some good transparency and accountability, that can do a hell of a lot of cleanup. Remind me again what LORA stands for? Legislative Open Records Act. Legislative Open Records Act. And how would, how would one go about changing that or making reforms to that? I, I think unless the legislature's going to do it, I think it all has to be on the ballot. So. The ballot measure. Yeah, and I, I think that's an excellent point in terms of you know, I've been asked, do you think the legislature can and will do more to hold itself accountable? And I, I think the Workplace Conduct Unit was already their answer to that question. Adama and Alicia rightly pointed out the transparency and the accountability when it comes to the auditor and the auditor's reports. But the auditor is a very protected nonpartisan position who is external from the legislature. And there is a very real question of should we not have a similar function, a similar person, a similar entity that is not subject to control of the legislature to be dealing with these issues? And if so, could they then deal with a broader scope, right? You know, when it comes to state agencies, for example, or the lobbying corps, this larger community where there's a lot of movement back and forth, um, where the same people may in three years work in all of those different roles, there should be some sort of overarching accountability. Thanks for that, Sam. By the way, I say your names because if, on the, you probably know this on audio. People may not know which voice is which. So I hate it because sometimes it gets in the way of having just a free conversation. But it, I have to kind of 
constantly remind myself to remind people who is speaking. One of the things that's popped up recently with the uh, just wave of allegations against Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York is not only the sexual nature of some of his behavior, harassing, groping, the, these allegations have been made against him, but also a new issue has emerged, which is really not new to a lot of people, but is new in terms of people talking about it, which is the issue of a toxic workplace where the abuse may not be sexual in nature, may not be someone trying to you know, abuse their power for sex or to have a relationship, but more in the line of someone walking around with a lot of power treating people disrespectfully and abusively, calling them names, making them feel fear, making them perform outrageous tasks or, you know, services at strange hours. This is something that's not unfamiliar behavior to anybody who's worked in politics, right? So in many ways, Cuomo's behavior, when I'm, I'm reading the stories alleging all the things he said or did that were not sexual in nature, I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not unfamiliar with some of these things myself on, on behalf of certain people. And there's a certain degree to which when you work in politics, that's considered normal. You have a boss who's elected, who can be to some degree above the law or the enforcer of the law. And who do you go to? Who, who, who's, who, who can you complain to? What's HR going to say if you are saying, hey, the, my boss, who happens to be this powerful person, uh, said something inappropriate or that violated my rights or the law? I just wanted to kind of Throw that on the table as something that do you think that that we'll be ready to talk about that anytime soon? It's different, I think, than the we said enough issue. But I think that a lot of these uh, cases come out of cultures and offices where there's already another kind of abuse that's openly being tolerated. And all it takes is one person decide to make that sexual in nature and you have an extension of that. So once you've been conditioned to accept a certain kind of treatment, it seems natural that that power dynamic is going to result in all kinds of other problems as well. Anybody want to want to go first on that one? I'll go. Um, Thanks, Alicia. Um, so I, at the end of the day, we need to professionalize being a chief of staff is my, my first thing that I think could really help in the legislature and as well as um, kickstarting this conversation. We we put people in charge of these offices. I mean, we, we can't help who people elect, right? They're, that's that somebody gets elected, they're in office. But we can change the way the management structure takes place in offices. And that's like your real first line of defense. I'm a former chief of staff. That is somebody who acts as a buffer between whoever is the person that gets elected and the employees that are there that might be there for a long time, hopefully, right? We wanna build a culture where we don't have high turnover. And that comes with good management. And there's just no way that the culture that is just, I think, rampant in politics where you have this toxicity, the crazy hours, the weird demands, the abysmal pay, all of that just doesn't work in a lot of other professional settings. And so we think we need to really professionalize the way in which that we conduct these offices. So that way you can implement better HR practices, better managerial standards. Just that in itself, I think would help with a lot of the toxicity that's getting perpetuated through um, the capital offices. I mean, that's just, and that's in the toxic nature. That's not getting into obviously when people make it sexual nature or get abusive, um, those, you know, are much more elevated, but for those core dynamics and changing the culture, I think starting at that point would get us pretty far into a conversation. 
Yeah, and I mean, sadly, I mean, I've worked in corporate America most of my career. And sadly, those issues are not just, you know, only in politics. And we actually have better laws on workplace harassment and, you know, what the workplace environment should really be like here in California than they do other places. But the problem is it's it's hard. It's a really hard, high standard to meet, right? It has to be a pattern and a practice. It has to be pervasive, which means that, you know, you have to be able to prove that day in and day out, that was kind of the, um, the what the office environment was like. So it's difficult. Um, but I will say, you know, part of what we've been talking about this whole time is that HR really needs to be reimagined in some ways because HR is very much a body that protects the company from liability versus a body that protects the employee and makes sure that they're able to actually just come to work and work. And that's really a fundamental flip and a switch that needs to be made in HR. And it's something that we've talked about a long time because those toxic environments and workplaces allow people to objectify others. And when you objectify someone, it's very easy then to sexually harass them or assault them, discriminate against them, not give them, not pay them equally because they're not the same as you, right? They're different. They're other. They're not. Those issues of equity aren't there. And that's pervasive throughout the entire environment. And so when you hear about these stories, like the workplaces like Cuomo, because the other thing you heard then was that people then hurried up and they were getting together and figuring out how they could attack the woman who first came out and protect the boss, even though these stories about the workplace around Cuomo had been out for years, right? Even though those were open secrets. And so that whole toxic soup of horrible um, environment plus retaliation, if you do stand up and say something, that's how those kind of workplaces and those behaviors really persist. Those are all really important points, Adama. I think especially when you think about something like an HR and what the role is there. And I know from being in, well, everything from kitchens to high political offices, you don't want to be the whiner, right? If they identify you as the whiner, there go your chances, there goes your, and I think even myself in some of these jobs, I was in the mentality that, hey, yeah, this is tough, but if you can't take it, you don't be here, right? And and looking back and then later in my career, I decided, you know what? No, I don't really think people should treat people like that. And especially people we look up to shouldn't treat people like that. And I was shocked to find myself in jobs later where, like my current job, there's not some Tyrannosaurus roaming around ripping people's heads off. My colleagues, my even my bosses think they should treat me with respect. That's expected here. And and uh, spend a lot of time in places where that wasn't true, whether it was in politics or, you know, working working in kitchens. So, I think uh, I guess the last question I'd want to ask you is this: If there are women out there still who have a story to tell or who are not able to get justice or accountability or even someone to listen out of the processes of, that exist, what step should they take? So we have told women from the very beginning, you know, if something has happened to you, you should do two things. You should seek therapy. You should get trauma um, therapy, talk to a counselor, call a mental health line, call RAIN. If you're in Sacramento, you can call LEAVE. There are resources to kind of deal with some of those things to make sure that you are actually in a place where um, you can feel safe mentally. And then if you do feel like you want to tell your story or you need to tell your story or it's time to tell your story, 
get that mental health help, and then get an attorney. Because we have seen many women come forward, decide that they are going to tell their story and they tweet it out or they um, you know, call a reporter and they start talking about it and then they're hit with a defamation lawsuit and they're in an even worse situation and that pain is just you know, revisited and rebounded. So I absolutely say you do not owe anyone your story. You do not have to tell anyone your story. If you feel safe mentally and physically and you want to, you can, but get legal help first. All good points. Alicia or Sam, do you want to add to that? I would add to that and say, understand what um, what redress looks like for you. Understand what's available. How, how does workplace conduct, for example, work? What could you expect at the end of the day, best case, worst case scenario? Um, what would a lawsuit look like for you? And, and thinking through what, what can happen to me positive or negatively, how is that going to impact my life? And, and ultimately it's a hard question to ask, but is this worth it to me right now in this moment to, to take this stand, to make this move forward? And, and sometimes it is, but if you don't think through to the end and about what a realistic outcome and expectation might be, um, you're not prepared. And sometimes you may get the thing that you wanted. Certainly there were women who, who were thrilled to see some of these legislators who had abused them step down and resign, but their names years later are forever linked to these men in articles. People know graphic, horrible things that happen to them every job that they take. So you have to take all of that into consideration and make your decisions with the end game in mind. None of which we did, by the way. We were completely <laughs> <No>. unprepared. We <laughs> did not have legal advice. We had to get an attorney. <laughs> well, you've done a lot of learning for others and provided a way, a framework for them to approach this issue. Um, thank you all for joining me today and sharing your time and your thoughts uh, on the California Nation podcast. Thanks for covering this, Gil. Cool. Thank you. Thank you.